fundamental relationships of our lives have the greatest shaping power in our lives. The most fundamental relationships of our lives have the greatest shaping power in our lives. The more central a relationship is, the more effect it will have on us. Our deepest relationships have the deepest impact. Our deepest relationships have the deepest impact. For example, our home situations as kids has an undeniably formative influence on our lives. Healthy homes with healthy marriages ordinarily produce securely attached kids. Unhealthy homes with unhealthy marriages ordinarily produce insecurely attached kids. Of course, God can and does bring so much good out of so much pain and painful homes. But the principle remains unhealthy homes and unhealthy marriages hurt children. Our most fundamental relationships have the greatest shaping power in our lives. Another example is marriage. In a healthy marriage, each person is sharpened and sanctified and encouraged and refreshed by the other person. As a husband and wife grow together, there will be growth together and growth as individuals. Another example is friendship. If we're pursuing deep friendships, which, as I just prayed, can only happen by a joint commitment to time and presence, then our lives will start to be shaped by our friends. For my best friend, Mark's 50th birthday earlier this year, I wrote this to him, and among other things, I said, Mark, your life has changed my life. Your words and time and attention and tears and questions and care and generosity and laughter and kindness and courage have shaped my heart and life in profound ways. Where would I be without you? And that was not hyperbolic preacher talk. <laughs> that was not overstatement. I don't know where I'd be without the friendship of my brother Mark and, of course, my dear wife, Susie, the friendship of my dear wife, Susie. Our deepest relational commitments inevitably shape and make us who we are. If you want to know what kind of person you'll be in the next five years, look at the five closest people to you. That's who you're going to be. If you want to know what your life's going to look like, look at the people closest to you. That's what your life's going to look like, ordinarily, generally speaking. I know there's exceptions. and I'm not going to qualify the thing to death. Relationships, especially intimate relationships, literally change our lives. Of course, the most obvious example that I haven't gotten to yet is our relationship with the living God who created us. If we are in a covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, then God will start to rub off on us. This is why those who say, I'm a Christian and live a life that looks nothing like Christ are wrong. (laughs) 
if you are in Christ and have the Spirit of Christ, your life inevitably starts to look like Christ. We'll start to think like Him, love like Him, act like Him, talk like Him, reflect Him. God's covenant partners have a relationship with Him that is so deep and so growing and so real that it results actual, noticeable change and action. God's covenant with His people creates intimacy that creates change. God's covenant creates intimacy that influences our lives. This is where I'm drawing my sermon title for today. God's friends, who we are if we're in covenant with Him, literally change the world. God's relationship with us changes us so that we can change the world. More on that in a few moments. Our most fundamental relationships have the greatest shaping power in our lives. This brings us to the second half of Genesis 18. If you need a Bible, there are little black pew Bibles in front of you. Find Genesis chapter 18. If you're still being sanctified and using your device, go ahead and find Genesis 18. If I do my job well this morning, then I'm going to try to just draw your attention to this passage again and again. So it'd be good to have the Bible open, have it in your lap, and be ready to look at it for the next, hopefully, 40 minutes. Genesis 18, the second half of Genesis 18, in this text, God wants to show us something very important about the nature of the covenant relationship that exists between Him and Abraham. These verses show us the kind of relationship that He wanted with Abraham and Abraham's wife Sarah. These verses show us that God's covenant with Abraham created an intimacy that would influence His life. The main point of this text, and what I'm going to say is the main point of this sermon, if this is good expositional preaching, the main point of my sermon should be the main point of the text. The main point is that God's covenant draws Abraham in to an intimate relationship that creates change, that does things. This intimate covenant thing, this relationship thing we call a covenant, does something in Abraham that is supposed to start to rewire and rework and reshape Abraham's life so that he's different. He's thinking different. He's supposed to be doing different things. He's starting to pray differently, as we'll see. God's covenant creates an intimacy that starts to reshape Abraham's life. God's covenant creates an intimate relationship that comes with immediate responsibility. Those are my two points for this morning. Number one, intimate relationship. Number two, immediate responsibility. Intimate relationship, verses 16 through 18. Immediate responsibility, verses 19 through 23. Like every other meaningful relationship, God's covenant comes with privileges and with responsibilities. Number one, verses 16 through 18, God's covenant creates an intimate relationship with Abraham. Genesis 18, look at verse 16. We'll read through verse 18. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. 
the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I want to stop right there. The Lord continues talking in verse 19. We'll come to that later. But in these first few verses, we see Abraham entering into a special kind of relationship. The covenant creating a special kind of intimacy with the Lord. Now, verses 1 through 15 that Jared preached on last Sunday, we learned of this divine visit from these three men. Uh, I hope that Jared sorted out for us who these three men were. Is it God? Is one of them God? I don't know. See Jared afterwards for any clarification. So there's this divine visit uh, where the Lord appears in these, uh, with these three men. And he does so to reaffirm his earlier promises to Sarah that she will have a son in the, in the next year and that this son will be named Isaac. But then the visit kind of oddly turns to Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're talking about Isaac and Sarah's life. They're like, there's no way I can have a son. I'm too old. Abraham's too old. Uh, it's all about Isaac. It's all about the birth of Isaac. And then, all of a sudden, kind of um, rather quickly, the, the scene shifts from talking about Isaac to in verse 16 to the end of the chapter into the next chapter, chapter 19, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I was talking to John Hudlow this week. Why is this in the Bible? <laughs> Why does it just go, why doesn't it just move from prediction of Isaac's birth to the birth of Isaac? Why put this little narrative about Sodom and Gomorrah? There's a lot for us to learn about Sodom and Gomorrah from Sodom and Gomorrah. There are many lessons to take away. One of the main things the Lord is trying to do is show us what the relation what kind of relationship he wanted to have with Abraham. What it would look like. The Lord turns our attention to Sodom because he wants to show us something about his relationship with Abraham. This entire episode in chapter 18 of the Lord engaging with Abraham is meant to show us of the reciprocal relationship that the covenant created between God and Abraham. Because of the covenant, Abraham was now an official confidant of the Lord, his official agent or ambassador. You might remember that phrase from chapter 17, verse 1, where the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham you will walk before me and be blameless. That language, walk before me, is literally used elsewhere to refer to an official diplomat, a governmental re representative, an agent. You will represent me. So the covenant brought Abraham into a personal and privileged relationship with the Lord. But what, is that, what does that look like? Well, this text is meant to show us some of what that looks like. Verse 17, the Lord says, Shall I hide? From Abraham, what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? What's going on with this rhetorical question? Do you think the Lord really needs information from or input from Abraham? Do you think he's really kind of confused, like, oh, I don't know if I should tell him or not? Why is he engaging Abraham with this rhetorical question? Because he wants to show us that the covenant that Abraham is now in has a depth of intimacy intimacy that Abraham didn't have with God before he was in covenant with him. So he asked him, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? The answer is, of course not. Of course not. 
No, I don't hide things. Covenant partners don't hide things from each other. Then verse 18, the Lord starts to give his reasons for, for not, not hiding his plan, for being so open with Abraham. So 18, uh, seeing, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So here's what God is saying. He's saying that first, Abraham will be a great and mighty nation. That refers back to chapter 12. If you want to glance with me at chapter 12, verse 2, when God first makes these promises to Abraham, chapter 12, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. Here he says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. So this corresponds to that first set of promises from chapter 12, verse 2. Then he says, and in, in, in chapter 18, verse 18, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. This corresponds to the second set of promises from chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is saying, I am doing this. I am asking you this question because I'm in covenant with you. I've made promises to you to bless you and make you a blessing to the nations. These two statements summarize God's covenant relationship with Abraham. His first two reasons for pursuing this open and transparent relationship with Abraham are because he's in a covenant relationship with him. Here's what the Lord is saying. He's saying, I'm in a covenant relationship with you, Abraham. So how could I hide stuff from you? Shall I hide things from Abraham, seeing that I'm in a covenant relationship with him? Answer is no. No. Covenant partners don't hide things from each other. Covenant partners have transparent, open, and honest relationships. If you're married, you know that that's the only path to health and flourishing in your relationship. Open, transparent, honest relation, uh, conversations. The Lord is saying, my relationship with Abraham means that I'm open with him about my plans. The type of relationship I've initiated with him requires openness and transparency. He's showing Abraham and Sarah the kind of relationship he wants with them. He's modeling for them the kind of openness and transparency that a covenant relationship creates. And he's contrasting this with the kind of relationships Abraham and Sarah are used to. Abraham has been lying Back in Egypt, he's going to lie again. Just in the previous chapter, chapter 18, verse 15, Sarah's lying about not laughing. So this text is right up against that previous text to contrast two different ways of interacting. Abram and Sarah are not so used to open, honest, transparent relationships. God says, he comes to him and says, shall I hide from you? In other words, do we hide stuff from each other? Sarah? Abraham, are we dishonest? Are we, are we not supposed to be transparent? We're in a covenant. Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, we are supposed to be honest. We are supposed to be open. I will share my plans with you. So the Lord's rhetorical question in verse 17 is him modeling for them what their covenant relationship with him should look like. Covenants create honesty not lies. Covenants create openness, not hiding. Covenants create transparency and truth, not dishonesty and deceit. So brothers and sisters, if you're in a covenant relationship with God, would you say that it's, it's defined by transparency and truth? 
or by role-playing, pretending, going through religious rituals and motions. Let me ask a more specific question. When was the last time you told the Lord how you really felt? Like he doesn't already know. When was the last time you were honest with him about your sin? I mean, actually talk to him about what you've done. Not in generic terms, but specific terms. What, what kind of words describe your relationship with your covenant-making and keeping God? The Lord here is modeling the kind of relationship He wants with His covenant partners. Put simply, put simply, here's what's happening. The Lord is engaging Abraham like He's a friend. The language of friendship isn't used here, but it's actually used throughout the rest of the Bible. The, the later writers of the Bible pick up on the nature of this relationship. For example, 2 Chronicles 27. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to forever? Give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Isaiah 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom, have I, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. James, New Testament 2.23. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. The covenant God made with Abraham resulted in friendship. And friends don't hide things from one another. Not if they want to remain friends for very long. They don't lie like Sarah did in 1815. They're open and honest. They engage in conversation, share plans. I said a few weeks ago that our relationship with God is not less than friendship, but that it's so much more. It's like a marriage. But every healthy and thriving marriage will also be a healthy and thriving friendship. This will look differently in every marriage, but it at least means consistent communication about how each other is doing. It means like asking your spouse how they're doing and really wanting to know. And, and not letting them get away with the, I'm good. You know, I'm just tired. I'm busy. Right? Not letting them get away with those pat generic answers. But entering into where they're at and wanting to know how they're doing. It means getting to know each other more and more. It means safe and warm and encouraging and refreshing conversations. It means playfulness and seriousness. Healthy marriages create Friendship between husband and wife. So it's not surprising that later Jesus, the groom, calls us, his bride, friends. The passage Sean just read earlier in John 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For, you've, for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. This is amazing. Jesus says, you're not my slaves. Of course we serve Jesus. Like there are ample verses that talk about serving God. But right here he says, you're, you're not merely a servant, merely a slave of mine who doesn't know what I'm up to. You're my friends. I'm welcoming you into the inner circle, if you will. I'm going to tell you what I'm about. I'm going to be honest with you. You're going to have information that other people don't have. Jesus calls his followers his friends because he's told us what he's doing. For 
all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. That's what's happening here. The Father, Yahweh, is making known to Abram what he's about to do, signifying that he's in a friendship, a friend kind of relationship with Abraham. Abraham is not merely his agent. He's also his friend. God values us so highly and loves us so deeply that he calls us into the inner circle of his being and lets us in on his plans. Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. So friends, are you friends with God? Have you entered into a friendship? It says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Do you understand that he created you and that you've sinned against him, that you deserve his judgment and that he will judge all those who don't turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ? Have you come to him with faith, confessing your sin, embracing Christ and Christ alone as your only hope for salvation, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, rose again on the third day, seated at the right hand of God, will come back to judge the living and the dead? If you're embracing those things, not kind of mentally ascending to those things, but embracing those things with every core of your being, you're friends with God. You're friends. You're no longer enemies. He's called you into his inner circle. He's made known to you his covenant. That word friendship in Psalm 25 is secret counsels or intimacy really is the idea. Intimacy is for those who fear the Lord. Covenant relationships create openness and intimacy. God speaks to Abraham. And then Abraham speaks to God, as we're going to see in a little while. There's intimate, transparent, honest back and forth between the covenant partners, Abraham and the Lord. This dynamic hasn't changed, by the way. God still speaks to us in the Bible, and we can still speak to Him in prayer. You're like, I just haven't heard from the Lord in a while. Open your Bible. You know, some often joke, if you want to hear his voice, read your Bible out loud. He's speaking to us all the time if we'll just listen. We can talk to him through prayer. This kind of reciprocal relationship is what friendship with God creates. The, the prayer and the Bible reading doesn't create the friendship. It's the the grace and the belonging and the acceptance and the love, the intimacy that we've had, that we found in Christ, that then creates a desire to, to go deep in that, to go deep with Him in His Word, go deep with Him in prayer. Covenanting with God means sitting with Him, listening to Him, speaking with Him. We do this individually. We do this as a church. This is why our worship services, our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings like this one are focused on Scripture and prayer. These are the main ways we together engage with God. They're the main ways we individually engage with God. The eternal holy God wants to come into our lives as a friend. He needs nothing. He's not lonely. He's not like desperate for friends. He's perfectly content in His Trinitarian existence. But He loves his people, so much that he wants to walk with them. Listen to what Herman Bavink says. Bavink says, quote, The unchanging God is related to his creatures in manifold ways and participates in their lives. Without losing himself, he can give himself. Isn't that amazing? 
Without losing himself, he can give himself. When we engage in friendships, it costs us something, right? Our marriages, our friendships, our relationships, they cost something, especially if you're an introvert like me. Like, I go home on Sundays and I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm relationally overloaded. But with God, he can give himself, he can participate with his people day after day after day, times billions of people throughout the ages. He can participate in their lives and never lose anything. Never lose one ounce of sleep or strength or wisdom. Never not know what to do or say. He can give of himself without ever losing anything. He's such a good friend. He's such a strong friend. He's such a faithful friend. I wonder if your relationship with him is characterized in these terms. A reciprocal friendship. Intimacy, openness, honesty. Now I've said that God's covenant creates an intimate relationship here. I think that's what is happening with this rhetorical question. It's revealing the kind of relationship that God wants with Abraham. It's revealing a friendship that he's now entered into with Abraham. But this intimate relationship then we're going to see now in 19 through the end of the chapter comes with immediate responsibility. So number one was intimate relationship. Now my second point, immediate responsibility, 19 through 33. But what I want to do is look at verse 19 uh, by itself, and then 20 through 21, and then 22 through the end. So we're going to take these kind of one at a time. First, verse 19, God's covenant creates responsibility. Verse 19, for this is still the Lord, uh, the Lord speaking, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. So here God continues to explain his reason for revealing his plans to Abraham. He says, he's done this because I've chosen him. Interestingly, that's exactly what Jesus says in John 15. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, because my father's plans I'm given to you, for I've chosen you. It's exactly what Jesus says next. I've chosen you. He's, he's referring back to this text, most likely. Abram, Abraham was selected, chosen out of all the peoples of the earth to bear God's name and mediate God's blessing to a world under the curse of sin. But then it says that the Lord chose Abraham, verse 19, that, so that, so purpose clause, he may command his children and his household after him. Pause. This is one defense for family worship. Don Whitney has a great little book, parents, on family worship. It's in the church library. He refers to this text. Abram, in other words, he didn't shuffle off his offspring, you know, to the local synagogue because there wasn't one, or the local church because there wasn't one. God told him that he was responsible to shepherd, teach, command, instruct his children and his house. Let that be a lesson for us. But keep going. Chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to do what? To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. To keep the way of the Lord. This phrase carries with it the, uh, the idea of a lifestyle. It's a way is a what? A path, a road. It's like you're on a pilgrimage. It's almost like, what's that book we've been studying in training class? Pilgrim's Progress, you're on a journey, you're on a path. This is the idea that's 
that the Lord's getting at. You're, you're with me to keep my way. And the contrast is that the way of the Lord leads to salvation. The way of the world leads to destruction as chapter 19, the incident in Sodom and Gomorrah is going to exemplify. So I've chosen you to keep my way, to walk in my way, to be in pilgrimage with me. And then it goes on to say, by, how do we keep the way? By, it says, doing righteousness and justice. By doing righteousness and justice. When these two Hebrew words are used together, they form the single idea that we call social justice. Throughout the Old Testament, this word pair is used to summarize how God wants His people to engage society. Jeremiah 22.3, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violent, uh, violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Then there's Ezekiel 49, uh, 45, 9-10. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression. Execute justice and righteousness. There are those words. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. You should have just balances. Then the more well-known text, Amos 5.24, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And Amos talks throughout in his short book, Taking Care of the Needy, Not Spending All Your Resources on Yourself, Engaging in What We Could Call Social Justice. These words are used in many ways today. And I know that many of you have all these radars going off in your head right now like, oh, what's John going to say? What's John going to say about social justice? There's so many debates raging. I'm not going to answer all those questions today. Right here in Genesis 18 and throughout the Bible, this idea simply refers to the way that God wants His chosen covenant people to keep His way in the world. Let's just start there. The way that God wants His covenant and chosen people to keep His way, to to live, to walk, to pilgrimage in the world. In other words, social justice, biblically defined, is about God's people reflecting God's character to the nations. God is just and God is righteous, and so He wants us to do justice and do righteousness. Notice the verb by doing these things, not thinking about these things, not even just praying about these things, not debating these things, not just reading about these things, but doing them. Keep my way by doing justice and doing righteousness. I think that too many well-meaning Christians have allowed valid concerns over things like critical race theory or wokeness to drown out the legitimate and biblical emphasis on social justice. God cares about injustice wherever it exists. Whether it's unjust systems or unjust people, God is concerned with the injustice. Both must be addressed with biblical principles in mind. Biblical categories of what is just 
and right in mind. This is not being woke. According to Genesis 18, doing righteousness and doing justice is what the chosen covenant people of God do. So call me whatever you want, but I'm going to try to do righteousness. I'm going to try to do justice in as much as I'm able to where I live in our community. Not because I'm trying to gain the favor of some group in society, but because I'm trying to keep the way of the Lord and reflect His character. So let's let the Bible define these things for us instead of our favorite preachers and podcasters and politicians and pundits. Would that we study the scriptures on these things and not our favorite talking head. Keep the way of the Lord, Abraham. I chose you. We have this intimate thing going on. You're mine. I'm yours. I chose you. You're going to teach your kids to keep my way. And the way you keep my way is to reflect my character. Like literally reflect it. Don't just talk about it, but reflect it. Do it. Do righteousness. Do justice. God's choosing and covenanting with Abraham should result in a people characterized by doing righteousness and justice, which in turn, it says, results in the Lord fulfilling his promise of worldwide blessing so that, end of verse 19, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Would he promise Abraham to bless him and to bless the whole world through him? The kind of relationship the Lord enters into with Abraham is the kind of relationship that creates a desire to reveal God's character to the world by doing good in the world, by doing justice and righteousness in the world. God's covenant people down through the ages and even today are on the front lines of helping the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant. For the last 2,000 years, it's been Christians who've been sending their own across the world to tell people about God's love and to demonstrate that love by teaching people to read and write, by building schools and hospitals, by creating businesses and infrastructure, by taking care of refugees and immigrants. This is why two of our own, Hunter and Maddie, are in Poland and Ukraine right now. Christians have been on the leading edge of adoption and foster care for 2,000 years. Randy Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, talks about how in the epidemics of the early centuries of the church, the epidemics of the Roman Empire, guess who was on the front lines? Christians. Christians were literally willing to engage with the sick knowing they would probably contract the, the sickness and die themselves. Christians give more of their money to charity than anyone else. Christians spearheaded the movement to abolish slavery the movement to abolish the Jim Crow laws, the movement to abolish abortion. Christians are the ones starting pregnancy centers, generally speaking. Soup kitchens, clothes closets, generally speaking. Christians are the ones teaching in our schools and serving in our hospitals. And it's not because Christians want to create a new Israel as theonomists may desire, but because we want to point to a new creation. We aren't trying to create a new Jerusalem. We're trying to point to a new Jerusalem that's coming. We're trying to embody the kind of kingdom that we've been called into. We aren't trying to usher in that kingdom. We're seeking to display it, help people see it and taste it and love it and come into it. We're trying to light candles instead of just yelling at the darkness. So for Abraham... And for 
all of God's people down to you and me. God has chosen us, covenanted with us, so that we would represent Him in the world. And this kind of relationship creates a desire to reveal God to the world by doing good in the world. Titus talks about, Paul says to Titus, that those who've been saved by the grace of God are now zealous for good works. Does that describe you? Zealous for good works. You got some extra money and you're like, uh, what do I do with it? Zealous for good works. Some extra time, a neighbor in need, a friend who needs some help. Like, what are you doing with the grace that's been given to you? Has God's grace just come and landed on you and stopped? Or are you doing justice, doing righteousness, walking in the way of the Lord, reflecting His goodness, reflecting His glory to those around you? God's covenant creates intimacy that comes with responsibility. As I said, our deepest relationships have the most profound and shaping effects on our lives. If God's grace in your life has not spurred you on towards love and good works, then you should consider whether you've experienced God's grace in your life. And this will look different for all of us. None of us are supposed to do everything. None of us can do everything. And we should not judge one another. We should not be competing like, oh, well, I, I'm really doing this and that person doesn't care about this. Well, you don't know what that person cares about. You don't know what they do with their finances. You don't know what they do with their time. It's not a competition to see who can do the most. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness, by reflecting God in whatever ways we can. Verses 20 and 21. The Lord telling Abraham what he's going to do. Verse 20, the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is the Lord's answer to his question in verse 17. Shall I tell Abram what I'm about to do? Well, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and see if it's as bad as he's heard. And it's not because he doesn't know. <laughs> It, the Lord never learns anything. So why does it say he needs to go down to see if it's as bad as he's heard? It's because the Lord is just. The Lord never judges capriciously. By going to examine the situation, the Lord acts justly, not flippantly. The Lord never flies off the, ham, flies off the handle in blind rage. God's judgment is measured and deliberate and calm and precise, but it's always just. So this outcry reaches him because there's no righteousness or justice in these cities. If you want to see Isaiah 5, 7, for the sake of time, we won't look there, but there's a connection, a literary connection between what's going on here in Isaiah 5, 7, where it talks about the lack of justice and the, la the lack of righteousness in Israel and how that's created an outcry to God. So this outcry has come to God because there's no righteousness, no justice. Rampant evil. The sin in Sodom, by the way, was more than sexual perversion. 
There was also social inequity and injustice. Listen to how the prophet Ezekiel describes it. Ezekiel said, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. That's, uh, that's Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. So the sin of Sodom was social and sexual. The people, it says, only cared about themselves and ignored those who were suffering. They wanted to have sex with everyone and wanted to share their food with no one. There was no justice or righteousness. So God rained fire down upon them, as we'll see next week. Let this be a lesson to our sexually perverse and prosperous and prideful and poor, ignoring hearts. Let this be a lesson for us. Let this be a lesson to our nation, to our sexually perverse, prosperous, prideful, poor, ignoring nation. God cares deeply about injustice and unrighteousness wherever he finds it. Now we come to this last little bit, 22 through 33. This is, this is a very interesting exchange between Abraham and the Lord. We're going to see Abraham plead with God to not destroy wicked Sodom or to not destroy the righteous with the wicked in Sodom. He's going to start taking his first steps in practicing social justice and, and blessing the nations. What God told him in chapter 12 about being a blessing to the nations starts to take shape here in this dialogue. So look at verse 22. We'll read all the way down through verse 33. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I, find Sodom, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him, again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40 I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So this is Abraham's attempt to avert the destruction of Sodom and his attempt to save his nephew, Lot, who lives in Sodom. Chapter 14, Abraham saved Lot by force. Here he understands that he'll only be saved by prayer. God's self-disclosure to Abraham leads to intercessory prayer 
excuse me, God's self-disclosure to Abraham leads to intercessory prayer for the lost. If God has brought us before himself, we should, be, uh, we should be bringing the lost before him. It is very instructive for us that right after this 16 through 21 text, right after the Lord does this rhetorical question, shall I hide from Abraham? I've chosen him to do righteousness and justice so that he'll so I'll bring to, uh, bring to pass what I've promised. Right after that, the very next thing is Abraham interceding for the wicked, interceding for the city of Sodom, interceding that God not, asking God that he would not destroy the, the righteous with the wicked. This is instructive for us. Immediately, Abraham turns his eyes towards the nations. He petitions the Lord on behalf of wicked nations. Moses later will petition the Lord on behalf of Israel, Exodus 32. But Abraham intercedes here on behalf of wicked foreigners. Unlike Jonah, Abraham shows compassion toward wicked cities. One commentator writes, It becomes us to hope the best of the worst places. It becomes us to hope the best of the worst places. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's hard. You guys struggle with that? To hope the best for the worst places? So think about the people you know who are far from God, places cities, nations, regimes, dictators, whatever. Do you struggle to hope the best for the worst people, places? Abraham here is interceding for Sodom. I think we should take from this that we also are to intercede and hope and pray for those who are lost and those who are far from God. Abraham is concerned for his nephew Lot, no doubt, no doubt about that. But he's also concerned about the character of God. This whole situation has created a moral impasse for him. If the cities are destroyed, the righteous will be punished. But if the cities are spared, the wicked will escape. So what's at stake in Abraham's mind is the integrity and justice of God. Will God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? If Abraham is supposed to keep the way of the Lord, like he's just been told up in verse 19, by doing what's right and just, and if the Lord doesn't do what's right and just, then he makes, uh, then Abraham's living a lie. He's, he's representing a God who doesn't exist. If God doesn't do what's right and just, then how can Abraham? So the character of God is at stake in what happens in Sodom. Is God righteous and just or not? This exchange, by the way, doesn't mean that Abraham is uncertain about this. This exchange shows us that Abraham cares and has compassion about the lost and his family, Lot. It's because the Lord is righteous and just that Abraham is perplexed by the possibility of the destruction of the righteous with the wicked. Abraham's intimate knowledge of God is why he comes to him with these bold questions. The give and take of this exchange reveal the merciful heart of God and the compassionate heart of Abraham. Interestingly, in chapter 19, as we'll see next week, neither of these scenarios happen. The guilty are destroyed and the righteous are saved. Sodom, of course, is the opposite of what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ, if you think about it. When Jesus died, God's judgment rained down on the righteous one so that the wicked could escape. Because God wants to show mercy to the unrighteous, he sent Jesus to die in their place, to take their punishment to offer free forgiveness to everyone who trusts in Him. And those who do trust in Christ enter into this covenant relationship that has openness, honesty, and transparency at its core. 
Meaning God, brothers and sisters, God will never lie to you. He'll never mislead you. He wants you to feel safe and welcome and accepted in His presence. Not because you're awesome, but because Christ is. And in Christ, He brings you graciously into His family and into friendship. He'll never be put off by your questions or complaints. He'll accept you and delight in you. He'll love you and even like you. This relationship comes with responsibility of reflecting God's character to the world. God's covenant creates a relationship that results in social justice, blessing the nations. God's people want to reflect God by doing good to the nations. This can happen in our neighborhood or in other nations. But if you're God's friend, it will happen. God's friends change the world. Think of it, friends. Where, where would you be if it weren't for some other person, some other follower of God, some other friend of God had not brought you to Him? Where would you be, friends, if other friends of God hadn't prayed for you, helped you, given money to you, encouraged you, given you counsel and support, and all the things you've needed through the years? Where would you be? Many of us wouldn't be here, amen? God enters into this intimate relationship with us that changes our life to such a degree that we want to give our lives up for the good of others so that they also might have this intimacy with God. Our deepest relational commitments inevitably make us who we are. God's covenant creates an intimate relationship that comes with immediate responsibility. God is the kind of friend who really wants to engage you and the kind of friend who really wants to change you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would please help us to take from here the things that we need to take from here. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember who we are, to remember the kind of relationship you've initiated in our lives. Thank you for allowing us to be your friends, to know what you're up to. Thank you that we can talk to you and be honest with you. Thank you that you've been honest with us. You've told us the truth about ourselves, even if we didn't want to hear it. You've told us that we are made in your image and fallen in sin. You've told us that your son, Jesus, is the only hope for our salvation and that he can be ours through faith and faith alone. Father, I pray for for our church, I pray that we would keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. I pray that we would walk in your, way, your ways, reflecting your character. You would put on us special burdens to bless those who are less fortunate. I pray that you would bless us financially so that we can be a blessing to those who have needs. Father, I pray that you would bless us so that we can be ambassadors and agents and faithful friends of God in this generation. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for friendship with you. Please help us to be faithful friends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.